Hello, I'm Sheila Hamilton and welcome to Beyond Well. We've had an incredible run so far. We've released over 200 episodes based in Portland, Oregon. Neither rain nor gloom, COVID or Zoom can keep this podcast from its appointed mission of reaching listeners all over the world. We've gathered up the most compelling episodes we've done on grief and we're going to highlight them in the coming weeks. Before we get started, we'd like to thank Active Recovery TMS for their support of our show. TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and with neighborhood offices to make it so convenient for you, Active Recovery TMS is your choice for transcranial magnetic stimulation in the Pacific Northwest. Active Recovery TMS has recently begun adding therapeutic sessions as well. And for more information or to find out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. As we highlight episodes on grief, let's visit one of our earliest shows and a conversation with author Cheryl Strait. Um, this podcast is called Beyond Well, and what we do is every week we look at a different part of being human. So we decided to use, because you're so good on the topic of grief, grief awesome. with you. Yeah, just because I think there's nobody. I actually put you right up there with Joan Didion. Oh, thank I really you. do. I think there's been two writers who have kind of defined what grief can do for us and how to take a different perspective on it. Mm. You and Joan. Mm -hmm. And I think you're, you relate more to more audiences. I would have loved to have Joan in, but she wasn't available. (laughs) (laughs) So Joan, in case you're listening, that's why Cheryl's here. I was listening to an amazing um, conversation with you and Lydia and Pam Houston the other night. And the guy got up and said, uh, this person needs no introduction, Cheryl Strait. And I was like, she needs an introduction so that people know your history of writing, how long mm. you were at it mm. before you had this breakout memoir, Wild, Thank you. how hard you worked at uh-huh. becoming a writer and mm-hmm. sort of understanding the human condition, that you've been translated in 50 languages, mm-hmm. wow. that you, oh that gosh, you have right. had a movie made about your life, that you have had plays made about your life. I was like, no, introduce her. Mm-hmm. So that's what I just did. Welcome, Cheryl Strait. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're so <laughs> sweet. Are we on? Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, we put these headphones on? If you like them. I don't, I don't like listening to myself no. in them, but it, oh. if you like it. You don't have to. It just makes you feel more official. It oh, does. It Jenna, does. We don't need to be more official. Jenna, yeah. and Brian. Brian. Okay. Yeah. It does sort of help with, I think, the the feeling of how your voice is coming off okay. in your ear. But I'm right. so used to it by now, and Me you too. probably yeah. are too. Um, so, in your memoir, Cheryl Wild, I I found one thing that you said. I I, I went through and I looked at, at almost every passage about grief, and you said. Uh, I'm just going to find it because you said grief. Okay. The deepest thing I know about loss is that grief is love. It is love. It is not sorrow. It is beauty, not ugliness. I was like, oh, you know the reason that resonates with me? Because when you're in grief, you can't see anything but it's ugliness. Right. Because it's so painful. Right. I mean, very often when we lose somebody who's essential to us, it is it is the deepest pain right. that we'll ever experience. Yeah. And it's a pain that doesn't go away, that doesn't, uh, you know, act act the way we expect it to act. Like it hurts a lot at first and then it gets a lot better and then it's gone. That's not what grief does. And for me, that realization that, that you know, there's a reason it hurts so much because you have so much love. Mm-hmm. And when I reached that point in my own grief over my mother that I began 
to be able to see that, that to see that really, yes, this hurts, but what a gift, what a gift that I loved this person so much and felt so loved by her that I would love her forever. I still marvel at that, how much I love my mother so many years after she's disappeared. We uh, talk about this idea that the reason you have this hurt is because you have this great love and great attachment. You can't have one without the other, right? Right. But it's complicated by a mother-daughter relationship. And I haven't heard anybody delve into this with you. Was there ever the point at which you regretted, for instance, when your mother went to college with you, that you didn't let her walk with you? That you weren't, because you were in the teenage years when you lost your mother, was your grief complicated by how we are as human beings when we're teenagers? Absolutely. And I want to hear Jenna and Brian talk about this too. But I know what I learned by writing about my grief is that I'm, you know, in a very specific category of people. When you lose a parent, when you're in your teen years or early 20s, those are the years where developmentally your job as a human is to separate from your parents, yeah. to, to push them away, not necessarily in a, in a way that's um, negative, but just to say, listen, I need to make my own life now. I need to separate myself from you and define myself away from you. That's, that's healthy development, right? And what happens when you lose a parent in the midst of those years is that, yes, you're, you're filled with remorse over all those times that you weren't as pleasant or as welcoming or as frankly honest about how much you love that person. Mm. And I was tormented for years about that. I've written about that in all of my books, about those times that I said something really ridiculous to my mother. Like it, it's in the movie too. It's in the book. One time I said to my mother, isn't it amazing how much more sophisticated I am at this age than you were at this age? Which is what Which say, is, I know. Right? And yeah. my mom just laughed. You know, of course, by that age, she'd had two kids. Like, But I was in college and I yeah. was reading books and you know, all she was doing was taking care of babies. And, and at that age, my arrogance was so, um, you know, delusional like it is when you're a teenager or in your early 20s. And so, yes, I, I thought about that uh, a lot. When, when m my first short story won an award and it was about her, it was about my life with her as a single mom, she very proudly said to her own mother, Cheryl's story is about me. And even though it was wow. true, I snapped at my mom and I said, it isn't about you, it's fiction which is ridiculous because it was totally, you know, autobiographical yeah. fiction. But it was, a, again, this, this moment where I was, you know, I was trying to separate myself. And so I'm haunted by the things I said to my mother in those years, like so many people are haunted by those things. But what I had to realize is that I had to forgive myself for them. Mm. And what was beautiful is I knew my mother forgave me the instant they happened. Yeah, exactly. Because my mom knew I was a teenager right. in my early 20s. Yeah. Do you guys, when, when Cheryl talks about uh, the complications of grief and the different types of grief, have that thought that if we brought in 25 different guests, we'd have 25 different experiences with grief. There's no, you're never going to find kind of uniform, like I, one thing that really bugs me is the five stages of yeah, grief. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, yeah, it doesn't really feel like it's grounded in any kind of science or any kind of personal experience for sure. And it makes people feel as if perhaps they're not having the right experience with grief. Yeah. And I would say that not only is 
everybody's experience of grief different, but your experience of different types of grief is likely to be very, very different. You know, when your mom dies, that's going to be a very different experience for you than when somebody else that you love dies. And I think the experience is just so much more about the relationship that you have Mm. versus this, like, thing that we call grief that everybody's supposed to go through these, like, exact stages or, like you said, Cheryl, you know, it's really intense at first and then it fades and then it's over. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I've spoken with many people who have um, partners who have suffered for a long time with mental illness and they talk a lot about the guilt that they feel from being relieved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it that their grief is really compounded by this idea that I'm actually relieved that this is over because it was a harrowing, harrowing journey. Yeah, I think that's one of the really difficult messages we give people who are grieving is that there's this like right way to feel and it's primarily sadness. You should just feel intensely sad Mm -hmm. and nothing else. You shouldn't feel relief. You shouldn't have any joy in your life during those times when you're grieving. And it's just like any relationship. You still have a relationship with this person and it's a complicated relationship. Did you, you know, I was so struck by how much deep wisdom you pull out of your heart and your soul at such a young age, Cheryl. And and as far as I know, you weren't going into therapy. You weren't doing anything more than deep reading and writing, correct? Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I love, I, as an advice columnist and advice podcast host, I'm always telling people to go to therapy. Yeah. I've never done that myself. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, writing has been my therapy and, and, and reading and and deep contemplation, I do in my own life what therapists ask their clients to do all the time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I just want to mention, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross with those five stages of grief. When I first uh, was grieving in my 20s and became aware of her, I was angry at this idea. How dare anyone say I should feel this, this, and this, uh-huh. and this in order. And, you know, now I, I have come to really understand that, you know, we've misinterpreted her work. Yeah. And, and I want to just yeah. say that she was really revolutionary <clears throat> and important in, in the way we think about grief, because she was one of the first people to say, it isn't just sorrow. Yeah. Right. There right. is rage. There mm-hmm. is denial. There is. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. I do think that that's a misread of her. Yeah. And so what I did is I said, hey, like, I do feel all these different ways. Yeah. It, you know, I, I'm the most sad but I also feel angry and I also feel all these other things. Sure. I think the problem is when we talk about them, when they've gotten interpreted as stages, yeah. then we sort of think, oh, it's a stage and I'm supposed to go through them in this like linear way. Yeah. Well, and, and they're called stages, right? right? Of course. Yeah. Right. I tend to accidentally think in metaphors and what's showing up in my head is this idea that you go to some multi-course dinner and they first bring you an appetizer and it's small and you get like four bites and then they take it away and then now here's your salad <laughs> right. and then here's your and here's your main and then here's a dessert uh and that's i think sometimes how we think of the stages of grief is mm-hmm. oh first there's this thing and you have just a little bit of it and then once you're all done with that then you move on to the other thing and i think the stages could be better thought of as a potluck mm-hmm. <laughs> where, you, you know, it's like, yeah, there are these different uh, things that you eat, but you might be like, I'm going to have seconds and thirds of that. Well, and I a just keep coming feast. to that or yeah. I'm going to have a the dessert feast. Feast. Yeah. Yeah. So Because great. different yeah. things oh at different God, times come so up. Yeah. Like in my 20s, I might have been angry. I, I wrote about it in Wild on my mom's 50th birthday. Uh, I was on the Pacific Crest Trail and I was, I just woke up so mad. I was, I was just mad that she didn't live to be 50. 
How dare she? Mm. And then, you know, 15 years later, I'm at the zoo with my kids and I'm seeing all these these grandmothers with their grandchildren, mm-hmm. their daughters with their, their mothers and their own kids. And, and then I'm angry. Why don't I get to have a grandmother in my life mm-hmm. for my children? You know, there's different kinds of, they, yeah. they come around again and That's again right. in different ways. That's right. And it's like, I'll have some more dessert. That's yeah. right. You know, that, yeah. I, and I think acceptance gets um, thought of in the same way. Like, well, I just need to accept this. And then it's like, okay, well, now I've accepted it. No. And mm-hmm. people don't really, I think get a handle on the idea that it's like, no, actually you have to accept things over and over again, sometimes many times in a very short period. And then years later, this thing pops back up where you're like, but why? Yeah. God, this yeah. sucks. And you've got to do that work again. Mm-hmm. Cheryl, one of the um, really fascinating things I, I think is your perspective on the activities you did use during that time that you were really searching when you kind of turned to drug use, when you were in a really bad marriage, you were way young and mm-hmm. got married, you were searching, but you reflect on those things as moving you toward yourself. I want you to talk about that a little because it's such a healthy perspective of not kind of shaming that girl who made those choices. Right. I mean, I think that, and this is where, you know, therapy and writing come in is that you get to really take apart um, some of the choices you've made and, and figure out why you made them. And that always leads to a sense, I think, of not only deeper understanding, but a, a deeper sense of, of forgiveness, you know, that you forgive yourself for the mistakes you made and eventually see them as gifts. And that's certainly true for me. When I look back, I can see so clearly that that, that the 20-something me who decided to be really uh, sort of risky and do destructive things, self-destructive things. I was really just trying to to show the world how much I loved my mom mm-hmm. and how much she mattered mm-hmm. because my mother was not a notable woman in the ways that we consider people, you know, notable. She was an ordinary woman who basically was just a good mom. Um, the only time she ever even appeared in the newspaper was her obituary in her mm-hmm. whole life. And I couldn't believe that the world just went on. I know that's a really cliche thing to say, but that's what people feel Mm -hmm. when somebody they really love dies is how can everything around me seem so normal when everything's different? And I'd always been this ambitious girl. I was always going to rise up and I was going to, you know, from the, from the circumstances in which I was raised as basically a kid in poverty. And I was going to make my mother proud and I was going to buy her house and I was going to live our life. And then when she died, I thought, okay, to prove my love for her, to show everyone how much she matters, I'm going to ruin my life. I am not going to make good on my intentions. Wow. Now, when I was deciding to use heroin or you know, sleep with a bunch of men or do this or that or the other thing, I wasn't thinking that consciously. But I, but I so clearly see that now. And, and thankfully, what happened is I intervened in my, in my own life. I thought, you know what, I just woke up and want to honor my mom, I have to become the person she raised me to be. Mm. And I have to find a way to do that. And for me, you know, that, that acceptance, Brian, that word acceptance, I think is the most important one in my life when it comes to um, living with my grief in a way that allows me to thrive rather than holds me back is that acceptance to me is about um, accepting the fact um, that, that you're always going to have to carry that burden. Right. That one of the things that I have to carry is that I will never, ever, ever have my mother again. And that's a heavy burden, but I can bear it. Mm. And, you know, we're speaking in metaphors here, but that's so much what happened 
it, when I decided to take that backpack, I couldn't lift all that way on right. the Pacific Crest Trail. You yeah. know, when you, it, it, I was doing with my body what I needed to do with my soul. And it taught me how to do it. Mm. it you uh, talked about in your book, the self-reliance that you had. Uh, when you said in your tent, you'd say, who's tougher than me? The answer was always the same. And even when I knew absolutely there was no way on this earth that it could be true. I said it anyway, no one. I'm like, (laughs) there has never been in a time I have talked to myself in such a beautiful, kind, and self-assuring way. Oh, Sheila, you should. You should talk to yourself like that. But but did it come from the trek? Did it come from this deep, deep connection that you had with your mother? If you think about who you are as a person, where did that strengths come from? You know, it's so interesting. This is always the hardest question to answer. Like, how how are you like you are? Yeah, Why are you like, you know, right. I don't know. Yeah. What, what I can say is, you know, I, I sort of blush when you read that line because, of course, women especially are not allowed to say things like, nobody's tougher than me. But what I want to say where I'm coming from with that self-talk is I don't believe that um, that actually I'm the toughest person on the planet. But what I believe is in order for me to do the hard things, I have to just tell myself hmm. that positive thing, even hmm. though, you know, that's what I would do with fear, too. When I would say I'm not afraid, I would say it when I was afraid. So it's just a method I use. Like I do this, too. When I went through the whole red carpet season with Wild, you know, I was always standing next to Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. And, and I would I just decided at the outset, like, you are not going to say mean things to yourself about your body or the way you look. Man, You're just I love not that. allowed. And so I would look in the mirror and be like, you are beautiful. And the, but I would say that when I didn't feel beautiful. It's just, it's just a method. Yeah. It's, just, it's, like a, it's like being mindful about the, the voice that you allow into your head. It's a very powerful voice. Does this fit with your experience in the tent when you said like nobody is stronger than me, I was thinking nobody can occupy my space right. better than me. Like I sometimes think there's got to be people who are better at their of lives right. than I am, <laughs> but nobody is better at my life than I Like if I don't pick this up, that's right. No one will because nobody's in my skin. Nobody's in my head. If, if not me, then who? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think as you know, there's a diff- there's a difference between that and being a raging narcissist, you know, of course, of course. Sure. I am not actually marching around going, I'm beautiful and I'm brave. And I'm, 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 you know, I'm thinking I'm, what I'm doing is I call this voice in my head, your inner terrible someone, your it's, mm-hmm. and we all have it. You all know who mm-hmm. that is, right? We're all familiar with that person. And then it's just that you have to decide, like, are you going to let your it's rule your life or not? And so I just say, hi, it's, guess what? I'm still going to write. I'm still going to put on a dress and walk the red carpet. I'm still going to go hiking. I'm still going to whatever, you yeah. know? And and so you just welcome them and then and then laugh in their face. And that doesn't mean that you actually think so highly of yourself, but you just decide not to let the lowest you know, the lowest version of you rule your life. Yeah. Um, do you ever have those moments, uh, Cheryl's two beautiful kids, Bobby and Carver, and I was curious if you, in thinking about your mother, sometimes think, oh, I just turned into my mother, and then sometimes think, 
shit just turned into my mother <laughs> do you yeah, have that i guess you know it's interesting <laughs> and, and which experiences invoke which responses <laughs> well it's definitely you know my mom was a very loving mom but yeah i remember her yelling at us a lot about like how messy our rooms were yeah. why can't we do this and, and yeah i become like a, a yeller sometimes just like my mom um and, and also a lover you know one of the greatest gifts that my mom gave me is even if she wasn't a perfect mom, I always felt completely loved. My, Me and my siblings all agree on that. Like we always knew our mother loved us so much. Yeah. And I think that's that's the most important thing to give your kids. And so there are all these ways that I feel like, oh God, I'm, you know, I, I feel guilty about this or I shouldn't have said this or I shouldn't have lost my temper about that. But they always feel loved. So I, I see my mom in that the most. Yeah. I was thinking of your mom um, when you were talking about being there in the tent and that kind of voice that you have about like, who's the toughest? I'm the toughest. And like, that's what good parenting does. Good parenting kind of reflects back to your children some external voice that you want them to be able to kind of eventually over time internalize, not in a belief of you're perfect, but that there's this other part that isn't just the scared part, that isn't just the, oh my gosh, I can't do this. And you were able in that time to kind of, whether you thought of it as your mom, but something got internalized that you had this other voice there to Mm. be able to 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 say to give you a different perspective. Yeah. I think it's especially Absolutely. fascinating given that you witnessed a lot of domestic violence, mm-hmm. a lot of poverty, there was food scarcity, you're living in rural uh area with no running water. Mm-hmm. And so you're still looking to the one human in your life who is reassuring you you are no one is stronger than you. No mm-hmm. one is stronger than you. That's all you needed, one human. Yeah. To me, that gives me so much hope, especially for young people that are in really dire circumstances, that if they have that one mentor, one human who's saying, no, here's how you, be, here, here's how you become strong, that they can be okay. Yeah. I think what that's about, too, is really believing. I mean, this goes back to what you were just saying, Jenna, too. It's like believing that you have the capacity. Right to do things, uh-huh. believing you have the capacity to heal, believing you have the capacity to go on when it feels like you can't, yeah. believing you have the capacity to find love when, when all is lost mm. and to take that next step. And I, I, I do think that, that that is such an important uh, shift to make when you do feel such deep despair or sorrow. I mean, w- when it comes to grief, very often a phrase you hear people say is, I just, I couldn't. I couldn't bear it. I couldn't live. If my child died, I could not live. Mm. And what we know is that that's a lie because there are so many people out there, so many people listening right now who have lost a child and who are living and who have many of them found a way to thrive and to turn that ugly thing into to something beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I wrote in Tiny Beautiful Things, I answered a letter, this man whose only child had been killed by a drunk driver, is, you know, I, I said to him by way of advice is, you know, you you have to, you know, I think that the the, the final stage of grief, I don't believe in these stages, but if, if there is an end to grief, it is when you make that transformation where you take the ugliest thing, your de- your deepest mm-hmm. burden, your heaviest burden, your deepest curse, and turn it into a blessing, into a gift, into something that you give to others, um, that you bring beauty into the world via the channel of your deepest sorrow. Mm. And I I think that that's ultimately so healing. Mm. It's about having the capacity to go on 
right. um, that, that allows us, I think, to find that joy again. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, there was a word, Cheryl, that you used earlier on about carrying it. I think that was the, mm-hmm. that was the phrase that you used. And in that, there's an assumption that you're going somewhere. And my experience, both with pains in my life and in clients that I've worked with, is that <clears throat> grief, uh, sorrow paints with this really, really broad brush. It's like painting with a roller, you know, and it just covers everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had clients who, who, in the midst of a of a of despair, will say, "I've always felt this way," or "I always will feel mm-hmm. this uh-huh. way," and it just kind of just overwhelms any other space for anything. And I think this idea that, oh, well, what I need to do is, quote, process, or I've got to get past it. It's, no, it's like I've got to make room for other stuff, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to bring this along. Mm -hmm. I carry it Mm -hmm. with me. So when you talk about making it a gift or you use it in some way, it's like, no, this colors my perspective now, maybe in some really hard ways, but also in some really beneficial ways in terms of compassion for other people. Mm-hmm. But um, that but that also goes back to the other word that you were talking about, Cheryl, which is capacity. Mm-hmm. Like what mm-hmm. if grief and loss like what if that increases our capacity? Mm. It's not I think it does. Yeah. yeah. It's not yeah. that mm-hmm. you have to figure out a way to get rid of this so you can go on with your life. But rather if you think about like carrying this with you your capacity is now just increased. You're going to carry this and all the other stuff in your life along with you. Well, you were joking in the panel that I was referring to the other day about whether or not our kids who have been spared of a lot of the tragedies (laughs) and harm, will they be able to be artists? Can they create? Is there a way that they're going to be able to find this? I think they will. Their imaginations are quite big and their empathy is huge, but... It does provide you an insight that sometimes you're forced to take, really. It's hard to teach grit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also hard to protect our kids from that grit. I mean, right now, so far, my kids, have things have gone swimmingly for them. But Sheila, as you know. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't know what's going to happen in in their lives. And, you know, we we can protect them and we can, you know, my kids have a, a very different childhood than I than I had in terms of just access to resources and, and, you know, economic privilege. Um, but you know, I don't know, they, they, something terrible could befall them at any moment. Right. And then they have their life. I mean, that's the scariest thing about being a parent, I think is, you know, I want my kids to be little precious cupcakes all of their lives. (laughs) We all do. (laughs) They don't have to be artists. They could be like, I don't know what, what kind of precious cup, they could have a cupcake shop and just live to, you know, happily ever after and never have their hearts broken and never lose anyone. And, you know, but that's probably not what's going to happen. Sometimes the hardest thing is the fact that they did have it easy. I was remembering this conversation with, um, Tommy Hilfiger on a program where he was talking about his kids are really struggling to find themselves because mm-hmm. he has raised them to be able to have everything they want. Mm-hmm. He's raised them to think that they can come in and take over the brand. He's raised them to be able, and his hardest thing is that none of his kids are doing well because right. they cannot find their own sense of what is theirs, what they need in the world. So, you know, it's like, of course we want to protect them, but sometimes the biggest pain might be actually in the fact that we protected them. Well, so, and we, and yeah. we often think of pain True. as this like 
inevitable part of life. You know, well, it's just going to sort of show up and you have to make room for it. But, but there's another side to it. Like pain teaches us something. Yeah. yeah. Like pain teaches us what is most important to us. It's like this GPS to what is most meaningful and important to us. And so if even if it were possible for you to spare your children or, you know, the loved ones in your life pain, you're really robbing them of this opportunity to learn and really be in contact with what actually really matters to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Under most circumstances, we don't have to create Right. Those opportunities. You know, like, I want you to grow up to be a really competent person. So tonight you're sleeping outside. Yeah. You know, I'm already, I'm already starting to form a business plan in my head of like, I could do a camp where it's like hardships for your privileged cupcake children. Everyone's stuck on a rock. It's called Camp Cupcake. That's enough. Send me your cupcakes and I'll make them into mud pies. (laughs) I'm very um, curious how you deal with the expectation that because you've had enormous success, both as an author and as an advice columnist, that people now assume that you never have grief. Oh, right. Or that, you know, or, or that also that I'll, matter. that I'm just like this font of wisdom <laughs> to, or that I don't have struggles in my yeah, own life. Yeah. I know it's funny. I, I've always tried to, 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 convince people that that's not true. You know, the kind of advice I give is is very much that I'm down in there with the person asking me for advice. And I'm saying, here are the experiences I've had. Here are yeah. the mistakes I've made. This is what I struggle with too. Um, but people really don't want to believe that. And I think maybe this happens too with therapists. It's like sure. they, oh want, to, they sure. want to put you, you know all the answers. So your marriages must be perfect. And you know that that's not true, right? right? And, or whatever, I don't mean. Well, your it's not probably right. Right. But, but your you know, life. me a little bit, but no. <laughs> Sure, but, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, and I think, I think that that's pr- projection. I mean, oh, I didn't go to sure. school. I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think- <laughs> and I think that I just say, I laugh it off and say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling too. And I, the minute people meet me, they, they understand that I'm not as whatever idea they had. Of I me. also just love though, that you've been, you've made it a practice to be open about mm-hmm. the hardest parts of your life. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, yeah. especially that's a mistake that you make when you're writing is that you attempt to put your best self forward. And really what people are kind of looking for is where's the human right. part of you where is the part of you that that's doubtful suffering yeah that that has all the things we have every single day you know and also thriving yeah because it, it right. does feel yeah. like we have like one or the other we either have yeah oh wow that person is really having a hard time yeah or we have the person that we put up on the pedestal and their life is perfect right we have very few examples and cheryl i i mean this is one of the reasons i have so much respect for you we have so few examples like you of People who have both yeah. at the same time, because that's, that's right. what being a Thank full you. human is. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you because it, I know that it's difficult to talk about what you're doing because you're back in writing and you don't want to tell us the project. Mm-hmm. But are you more faced with the realities of your loss when you're quiet and in your office writing again and being very reflective, or are you? more faced with it when the lights on the red carpet are flashing and you're at these big Hollywood parties. When do you feel it most? I'm always curious about that because people tend to have different reactions to when they actually get into that. I would say that, you know, it's two different kinds of experiences. When I'm writing, it feels like I'm doing deep emotional work, whether I'm writing about my grief or, or, or any aspect of my life. That, that you go you go to those deep places. What's the truest thing? 
And to find the truest thing, you have to remember as much as you can. You have to remember the things you thought you forgot. You have to go back and, and interrogate yourself. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? What was I feeling? Mm. And inevitably that brings up so many emotions. You cry. This is what I mean. It, it, in some ways replicates what I think happens in therapy. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it can be an emotional journey, but I've never experienced that as a burden. Mm. Um, I, I feel wrung out sometimes after a day of writing, like that kind of deep writing, but I feel also filled up, mm. you know, um, it, in the spotlight, what's interesting, there's this line in, um, in tiny beautiful things, actually in the title column that I read, I've read out loud so many times that um, this column and there's a line that says, you know, some people who seem to be, you know, I'm going to paraphrase myself, but people, some people who seem to be gliding right along are suffering and have suffered. And whenever I would read that line, it was the summer of, of 2012 and uh, wild was number one on the New York times bestseller list and tiny mm. beautiful things was number five. And I was going crazy. Like I was so busy and I had two little kids and there was, and every time I would read that line, you know, you know somebody who might seem to be gliding right along is suffering mm. and, or has mm. suffered. I would get tears in my eyes because that's what I was feeling mm. a lot. Mm. I was feeling like on top of the world, but inside myself, I was all, it was a lot was happening yeah. and it was hard. Yeah. And um and I was experiencing experiencing all kinds of emotions, missing my kids, not getting wishing my mom were here to see, be proud yeah. of me, like all yeah. of those things. And so, you know, I think that that can be really alienating. What what I've figured mm. out is when I'm the saddest is when I when what you see is not what I feel inside. That mm. like if there's a distance between how I'm feeling and what you think I'm feeling being in that moment. Right. That is so alienating. Yeah. And I couldn't say in front of those crowds, stop at that line and say, I'm feeling sad right now. Cause they'd be like, are you kidding me? You have a New York Times right bestseller. Why yeah. are you complaining? Uh-huh. So, you know, to be, to learn how to be honest in, even in those moments of victory and triumph yeah. is really hard because, you know, people don't often have sympathy for you. Well, it's such an well, amazing point. Yeah. And it, like what Jenna was saying, Cheryl, about you carrying both of those things, it seems like when you're writing, you could potentially sort of fall into the abyss, Mm -hmm. you know? And then when you're on the red carpet, there's almost a denial of that other part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is no abyss. It's all glamour and light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all happy clappy and kind of, and and really the truth is, no, I've got these things that are side by side and the black doesn't make the white any less white and the white doesn't make the black any less black. Yeah. I think you just said such a truism there about suffering in general that the times when you feel saddest, most sad are when you feel sort of isolated, when your insides don't match how other people are perceiving Mm -hmm. you. And I think that is probably the case for all of us in all of our suffering. Like at the heart of suffering, at least for me and for many of the people I serve, it's when we feel a disconnect, when we feel like we don't have a sense of belonging Mm. with at least one other that like really knows us because we're such social critters. I mean, we are incredibly social creatures. Mm -hmm. And so when it feels like you're not being seen, that is, that's just profound suffering for all humans. It is. And, and, and especially I think when you feel like a lot of people do that, that they, in order to be loved, they can't be seen. Yes. Mm -hmm. That they have to, they have to look a certain way. They have to be at a certain weight. They have to have a certain kind of, you know, attitude or wear a certain dress or whatever it is. That artifice, Mm -hmm. artifice never makes us happy. Yeah. And that happens in grief all of the time. Yeah. Either people will say, oh my gosh, I can't be, people can't be around me because I'm too sad or, or down. 
or they can't be around me because right now I just happen to be feeling joy and I'm remembering my mom and that's really off-putting to people. And so they feel like they have to like manage their grief in some way. Yeah. Why are p- people are judgy of other people about their grief? Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. I mean, they really are. I will never forget talking to a woman at a suicide conference. She had lost her son a year earlier and, um, and she had taken him to college his first day of college, her, her kids launched that time when a parent is supposed to relax and say, I did my job. And he walked down a pier and jumped into the water and, and died by suicide. And her friends said, she said, my friends were so unbelievably helpful in the first two months, three months at six months, they started kind of not inviting me to their parties mm-hmm. because I really was not done grieving. And at one year, they actually formed an intervention that said, you should be done with this yeah. and starting to move yeah. your life. And I, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't fathom friends like that. I yeah. honestly, but she said it was, it was incredibly alienating for her mm-hmm. that they were on a timeline that she wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. happens. I, you know, I, I've gotten that a, a lot, you know, a lot. And I mean, what I know is that I've also talked to, you know, thousands of people all over the world who walk up to me and say, you, you said exactly how I feel. Yeah. You yeah. wrote exactly mm-hmm. how yeah. I feel. So I know the truth of that. But every once in a while, there will be people who say, well, you know, you shouldn't still be sad after 10 years or one year. Like there's a time line. And, and I'm curious for both of you, you know, I've read that there's, I guess, is it a clinical term, like complicated yes. grief or, you know, a grief mm-hmm. that, yeah. you know, I get it that sometimes, obviously it's bad if your grief holds you back, you know, from the rest of your life, but it's, it's not bad to still feel sad 20 years after Mm-mm. somebody dies. I would expect your, this woman you met to feel sad about it forever. Right. Yeah, right. So what is, talk, talk to, can you talk to us about Basically, grief being pathologized, is that the right word? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> well, well, what we do is we draw blood and we look at it and we say, oh, you have the complicated grief. No, and we take a picture of your brain. We do a brain scan right. and we take your blood. Because yes. right. if it's I, the brain, it's real. There's all sorts of things that get pathologized. Uh-huh. And um, I think Jenna and I are, are cut from the same cloth in the sense that um, we don't buy into that that paradigm. Uh-huh. Uh, my estimation is that it, I don't want to pathologize it, but I want to say like there are ways that we relate to our internal world yeah. that either helps us be about the things we most deeply want to be about. And there are ways that we interact with our internal world where it pulls us away from being about what we want to be about. That's so well put. Mm. So that's it's like really, your, it's it? the it's your inner terrible someone. Yeah. 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 Versus exactly your right. inner good someone. Yeah. 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 So I can see how my grief or loss for a time, I am going to sort of check out. I'm mm-hmm. going to take a little time off work. I'm going to wear the black. I'm mm-hmm. going to mourn. And then there's at somewhere in there, it isn't so much putting it away or getting past it, but it's like at some point I do want to find a way to carry this mm-hmm. with me and still engage in the world in the in the here and now versus in the there and then. And there's a way to bring that experience of the there and then with me mm. into the here and now and still be about things. Sheila, Cheryl, you've both done that. Mm-hmm, Jen, I'm mm-hmm. sure you and I have done that too because yep. 
as we are want to say, we are all in the all suit. Same together. Yeah, right. All and there's the so many suit. times when you say things, I'm like, yeah, what he said. What he said. <laughs> we, we do think about these things very similarly. I should have Dr. Phil come in one day and just disagree with both <laughs> yes, of you. Yes, definitely. That would work. And we would say, yep, that is not, <laughs> not exactly what I would say. <laughs> yep. If you want conflict, bring him in. But, but I think if you're talking about kind of quote unquote complicated grief, the way mm-hmm. I would understand that is it doesn't have anything to do with the intensity of your emotion. Mm-hmm. It's not like, well, if you're on a eight and above on the scale of grief, then that means it's complicated. I would say grief, I don't even like, I don't even know what complicated grief means. That's uh, to me, not a very helpful term, but very much what Brian was saying, it has to do with can you have all of your life? And we go back to that idea of acceptance. And I love how you talk about acceptance, Cheryl, because it's so different than many people talk about acceptance. And you talk about it in your writing simply as can you have what is? Like, can Mm -hmm. you take Mm -hmm. this also with you. It's not being okay with it. It's simply like, could I pick this up that's already there in my life and live my life, bring it along with me? Yeah. And I think when people are in a place that they don't have the resources or they don't know how to bring it with them and continue to live their life, then they might need some help from writing and right. I, or therapists or whoever to help them learn how to keep on with their journey. Yeah. So, I'll add to this too, <laughs> that the acceptance piece, it seems like uh, sometimes people have this notion, well, if I accept that thing that happened, yeah. then I'll stop feeling so oh, bad yeah. about it. And then you feel guilty. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, right. actually I think the message that I would want is no, actually what you're accepting is the thing that happened and the emotions that come along with that. Mm -hmm. You're accepting that whole bundle of it. I also just want to touch on how beautiful it is in a deep stage of grief to be completely aware of how open and vulnerable one is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember after my, well, I've had so many different times of feeling intense grief, but Mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things was actually having a conversation with a friend and thinking, I'm listening deeper than I would have ever yeah. listened because of my grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm actually mm-hmm. enjoying the people at this party because they're being tender about my loss because of my grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It allows us to have kind of a clarity around mm-hmm. life sometimes that if we can hold on to that, there's some really beautiful things that start to be cultivated from Yeah. That's you know, the pain teaches. Right. Well, and it's, I think though that that intensity, I I know exactly what you're talking about, but I think it scares people. So many people don't know what to say Mm. when they have a friend who's had a loss, Yeah, you know, and I think that, that, that kind of sense of like, I don't know what to say comes from this mode of thinking of like, that you have to say something that will actually change what's true, which is, which is never possible. You know, you you can't, your words can't bring the loved one back, but your words can comfort and console. And one of the things, the, the first, one of the first things I wrote about deep grief was this essay called the love of my life. And it was part of the essay was about, you know, the ways that I was feeling so alone as a 20 something without a mom, because all of my friends had their moms. I was like, I felt like the only person on the planet who didn't have a mom. Yeah. Uh, Later I went and found that tribe, but you know, I didn't have them then. And they would all say to me, one thing I wrote in that essay is I'd say they'd tell, they, they wouldn't help me. They would tell me I needed to get help. Mm. Wow. So wow. they would say, you need to get help. You need mm. to go to therapy. 
But really, well, all I needed was someone to take a long walk with me and say, how how are you feeling? Yeah. You know, it's it's a year and a half since mm-hmm. your mom died. What are you feeling? Yeah. And I would that, that, that mm-hmm. would be all the help I needed mm-hmm. because I knew that they couldn't give me what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I wanted my mom back. But if I couldn't get that, I, it would be nice just to have somebody who was willing to not avoid the subject. Yeah. Wow. wow yeah. That's so and good. I just if I do anything in this world as a writer, if I make any social impact, the most important thing for me is to have have changed or uh, the way that people think about grief, not only their own grief, but how to be around the bereaved, how to talk to people mm. about loss and, and to realize that you don't have to have any, nobody has the answers, right? Nobody's mm-hmm. going to be the magic bunny who pulls the loved one out of the hat, or maybe is it the bunny that gets pulled out of the hat? I'm <laughs> messing up my metaphors, but you know, just yeah. to be able to be sort of lucid and, and transparent and open-hearted and not afraid of that intensity, Sheila, that yeah. you talk about. And to connect with them, even in that grief, like how, yes. how beautiful that can be. You don't have to take it away. It's about like, I can be there with you, even if that grief is there. Yeah. But the message, the, the, the constant cultural message is if you don't like how you're feeling, something's wrong. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like it'll get better Mm -hmm. or there's a pill for it Mm -hmm. or something. Or go to therapy and then you'll feel Or go to therapy because therapists will just teach you to struggle more effectively. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, and like maybe I think what they're, I mean, this is this, this, these ways of thinking don't come from nowhere. Right. I mean, we, we have generations upon generations Mm -hmm. of, of people who've said, don't bring up those difficult topics, mm-hmm. right. okay? Yeah. So like my mother-in-law, she died a few years ago. All of her life, she was, if somebody, you know, you could say in the first couple months, I'm sorry for your loss. But after that, that there's the dead person is not mentioned oh, wow. because this will only make the, and she wasn't trying to be mean. She didn't want to upset the person. Yeah. Don't, don't mention her son. She lost her son a couple months ago right. or, you know, and then, you know, it, it becomes the taboo subject. And what happens is that the, the, the person who's grieving is isolated. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, silence never makes anything better ever. Oh, as I much completely as, agree. As much as we're supposed to learn, right. How to walk with our own grief. We were talking about that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Picking it up and carrying it with you. That's what we want from the people around us. Yeah. Like, I don't want you to try to make it better. I don't want you to avoid the yeah. touchy topic. Yeah. And if you get frustrated that after eight months, nine months, a year, whatever, I don't feel good, mm-hmm. um, I just want you to walk with me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And listen, I mean, I think that that's the biggest thing too is listening. Like, I don't know what to say either, you know, to somebody mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. lost, had a tremendous loss. It's like, all you can say is, I'm so sorry for your yeah, loss. Right. But the thing after that, I think, is is to just ask the person, mm-hmm. um, do you want to talk about yeah. the loved one? Do you want to yeah. tell me about what you're feeling? Or do you, do you want to, you know, I mean, to open the conversation, even if the bereaved is saying, you know, let's just talk about shoes today. Yes. Yeah. Let's go shoes. Yes. You know, but <laughs> right. sometimes it is like, you know, I named my daughter Bobby after my mom, Bobby, because I wanted that word back in my life. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I miss the word in my in 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 my world, mm. and you know because there is this sense of the unmet, you know, not mentioning the dead person, and and you don't want them to be dead. When you love somebody, you want them, you know, as as mm-hmm. you know, both of you said that that relationship continues yeah. on. Yeah. Right. Jenna, when we were talking in advance of Cheryl coming in, I thought you made such an excellent point when you were saying most humans go around thinking that the world's a certain way and everything's going to work the way they do. And that the first time it falls out from underneath you, it's so devastating. And part of what happens with the grief is the anxiety that 
oh my God, for the rest of my life, everything is going to go wrong. Yeah. Can you talk about how if someone is in grief that they can at least try not to complicate it with the additional anxiety that for the rest of your life, everything you touch, do, attempt is going to go bad? Yeah. Or maybe let go of that idea that you could do something to try and control all of that stuff. Because I think that's like the myth that many people walk around with in the beginning is like, oh, I got this. Life is controllable. Life is predictable. Mm. And then something happens and the bottom falls out from under you and you're like, oh, shit, life isn't. And what many people do then is I have to work a lot harder to try and control it and try and like make sure nothing bad happens to me or my loved ones. And then your life gets so small Mm -hmm. because like actually, actually living life is about living all like your full broad life involves risk, including getting your heart broken or, you know, losing somebody. And so I think that's the thing. It isn't about how do you help them regain control? It's about how do you help them get back to living their life Mm. in a way that is, um, you know, I, I talk about this as as kind of willing vulnerability, like opening up to like being vulnerable in this world. Um, so that's that's how I talk about it's it. It's just it always just pisses me off because my sister who became a Buddhist at 21 was just so right. I know they got it right. Life <laughs> is suffering. Just so you right. Know? Everything she had to say, everything she had to teach, everything she wanted me to take in then that I didn't really want to have to think about is now true. Mm. It's the thing. Cheryl Strait, thank you so much for coming down today, oh, especially so after your workout when you probably should have been pumping green juices into yourself. <laughs> thank oh, I you. love being here. I could yeah, talk to you really, all for another really hour. This was things. really fun. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so all of you. That was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.